This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. We have an hour of science for you now. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for all their lovely comments and bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We're going to give you some great science, though. In the studio with me is Dr. Catherine. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am well, thank you. You always fit and well. Your physio, physios are always fitting well. It wouldn't look good if uh, <laughs> if we were unfit, I suppose. It would be and then selling the message people I've need to I've never come fit. across an unfit physiotherapist. I don't know. It's something, something bizarre. Dr. Lauren, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? American Dr. Lauren. We should, yes. There's two of them now. We have to always... We'll just do that at the start of the show and then we'll, everyone, everyone knows now. And Dr. Ray. Morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Good to see you too. You know, I was thinking when the theme show was on, you know, I think it's an infectious little tune and I'm moving around a little and I noticed do. Dr. Lauren's starting to do that and, you know, Dr. Jen and I have always like had a little dance party thing. We get enough of the staff going. We could get the whole some, studio hopping. Some, the some start see, of the thing, see after, after almost 25 years, I don't actually hear the theme anymore. <laughs> Although if I'm out and the theme comes on somewhere, like in a shopping center or somewhere or other, I freak out. It's like, it's like there's a button I should push somewhere. It really messes with my brain. So, And we have Liv doing our Twitter feed. She's not in that often these days because she's all grown up. People remember when she started, she was like 16, 6, 6. Seven, something or other. Now she's graduated uni, smarter than the rest of us. It's tragic. Anyway, uh, let's start with some news. We have some uh, great guests uh, later in the show, folks, but we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Catherine, you're on my right. I usually start there. Thank you, Dr. Shane. I have some news that was published in this month's edition of the European Journal of Applied Physiology, and it's looking at uh, runners, elite runners, in fact, people uh, from Kenya who are traditionally been very, very well performing at long distance running, in particular over the last 40 years, and looking at the physiological adaptations uh, that these individuals have, which may mean why they're so successful at these types of running events. And previous researchers has found that particular characteristics of Kenyan runners include things like muscle and tendon um, structures that mean that running economy is very good, uh, also genetic characteristics, and also the fact that many of these individuals live at altitude. So particularly, there's a small group of um, Kenya, individuals in Kenya who are extremely good at running, and they are from this specific small ethnic tribe called the Kalean tribe. And the important thing about this tribe is that they live and are born and raised and generally live at 2,000 to 2,500 metres of altitude. So, in fact, the mothers carrying the baby are at altitude while carrying the child and the babies are born at altitude and then mm. predominantly live at altitude. And so it's, it's about twice the height of Lake Mountain. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's high, it's and it, high. and it, it's thought that some of these changes are due, due to altitude. But but this study in particular was looking at the brain changes and the brain's response to exercise, and in particular looking at the brain's use of oxygen in exercise, which is almost uh, often a limiting factor. So it's a study including fifteen runners who were extremely fit. Uh, they were running about 130 kilometres a week, which is which is quite a lot of training, and they did a number of exercise tests, and they did these types of tests were high intensity interval training tests. So they uh, gave the runners a financial incentive to run further and faster, so to take out sort of some of that self-control. And they did bouts of a 1,000 metres. So they had to run basically as fast as they could for a 1,000 metres, have a breast, do it again and repeat that as many times as they could. And after these tests, they were taking blood tests. They were looking at, um, looking at the brain oxygen levels using infrared spectroscopy to see how the brain was functioning. And they, the runners had to continue this until exhaustion or they collapsed and they were paid more to keep going further. <laughs> 
After, paid more to go after they collapsed or paid more to get to the point where they collapsed? Uh, to keep running further, yeah, so that they... So it t- took out some of that self-pacing. <laughs> no, no animals were hurt in the filming of this scientific experiment. It's a tough trial to well, be Well, I mean, if they collapsed, they couldn't run more and hurt themselves. Yeah, so, that's true. You know, yeah. Self-limiting. <laughs> and the results found that oxygen levels did dec- decline as people exercised more. But the really interesting thing was that they did find that these individuals were not protected against a brain drop in oxygen at that final extreme part of exercise. Mm. So they did have the brain was not using oxygen as it as it usually does at that final point. Uh, but they were that was at 95% of their highest fitness, which is the highest it's ever been shown before in a study. So this is very, very extreme level of fitness. And the other interesting thing was that the people who were better runners that could run faster and further had more protection against that. So they could actually um, still function with lower amounts of oxygen and oxygenation in the brain compared to others. So it shows you some of that sort of protective, protective effect. It also improves the really important point of pacing for these individuals, that they have that self-control and pacing. They probably can pace even running fast before the, the brain starts um, not being able to use oxygen as it, mm. as it usually does. It's interesting stuff. So now I can use the excuse, no, 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 I was born at sea level. I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> just short, short dis- yeah, I, I just can't run that far. I don't know if, um, if the article compared this, but so that protection about these people are really fit and they... they they, their brains still work when they're basically almost exhausted. How does that compare to someone born at sea level like Dr. Mm. Shane or the version of Dr. Shane that was a marathon runner? Um, <laughs> just, just in case we're, you know, yeah, yeah, just this, this is compared to, yeah. I, I don't want to use the word normal people because normal is kind of a ambiguous term there but well certainly this study didn't have a control group so they, they didn't include other mm. people who might might be living at sea sort of level but there's been much more research with people sort of living at, at general sea level and in other populations where it is known that that's a limiting factor to exercise for some people um and certainly at a lower level of fitness so the 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 sort of the um, cerebral oxygenation or the, the brain's use of oxygen sort of reduces at a lower lower peak. Uh, but it had been thought that these individuals from this specific tribe didn't have that problem and they were sort of suggesting maybe that's why they can run mm. further and better. But this study uh, suggests they do still have that as a limiting factor but, but are much more protected compared to other people. Mm. So it pops in later. Yeah, absolutely. Them. And, I mean, you know, sorry, I was just Googling while you were chatting, but, you know, Mount Bulls at about 1,600 metres so that, that's pretty high up. I mean, you know, you're talking about quite a substantial change um, at those altitudes and everything. So, you know, yeah. it's... Um, and these hmm. runners were running 20 kilometres an hour on average during those tests. An so that hour. is very <laughs> fast. We we walk about six kilometres an hour and on a treadmill, most people, even at the gym, would run maybe 10 kilometres or 12 kilometres an hour. So 20 kilometres an hour is extremely fast. That's fast. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Jeez, I'm getting tired just thinking about that. <laughs> Dr. Lauren, have you got any energy left? Uh, <laughs> yes, well, my um, news article today is uh, about bioengineers um, uh, in Newcastle in England have developed a prosthetic hand with the ability to see. So there's air quotes around that see for um, <laughs> those of us not in the studio. Um, so this bionic hand has the ability to reach and grasp objects automatically, and it responds 10 times faster than current prosthetics. 
Okay. So um, the software in this prosthetic hand bypasses the process in current prosthetics by re- um, that require the person to see the object, um, physically stimulate the muscles in the arm, and trigger a movement in the prosthetic limb. And so responsiveness and that response time um, is one of the main barriers to artificial limbs um, currently. And so this new bionic hand, or the, the new software in this hand, is able to do this um, much faster because it's fitted with a camera. Um, li- literally, um, I looked at a photo of it. It's bionic hand. It's got this tiny little sort of you know camera on it that instantaneously takes a photo of the object assesses its shape and size and then triggers a series of movements in the hand that allow um, the person to reach out pick up a cup of cup of coffee or a tv remote with nothing more than a cursory glance in that direction So the most interesting part about this is how they actually trained the the hand to do this. So they used neural networks and showed um, the computer numerous objects and taught it to recognize uh, different the different types of grip needed um, for different groups of objects. So in doing so, you can't just you know show one photo of, of a toothbrush because there's all the different kinds of toothbrushes, shapes, sizes. Um, and you have to show the computer um, images of the same toothbrush or cup in different angles, orientations, lights, and backgrounds. Um, and then, so the computer's ability to recognize objects and group them um, according to the type of grasp. So, you know, if you think you're grabbing a, cu- a cup of coffee is different to how you would grab a TV remote off the table. Mm. Um, and so this enables the computer to accurately assess and pick up an object that it has never seen before, um, which is a, actually represents a huge step forward in this area, um, and it's something that really hasn't ever been done before. Um, and so this bionic hand that can you know, see these objects and sort of do this instantaneously is, is really an interim solution um, that bridges the gaps between current technologies and, and future designs, you know, because ultimately we sort of would probably want a Luke Skywalker situation where mm. everything's, you know, you connected. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, this, this study is really important because it's relatively cheap and actually can be implemented really soon because you can just adapt yeah. to the current prosthetics. It, it's interesting too because all the stuff that we hear about so far is about control. Mm. Not about sensing. Yes. And so at some stage you have to bring sensing and control together. Yeah. And not that there isn't, you know, sensing and some of the, the haptic controls of some of these things are there, but, but one that's just very focused on the sensing element. And yeah. it's funny if they just use one camera, you can imagine them doing it with 20 at some stage or yeah. all over the hand. Yeah. yeah. Well, they were talking about how this is part of a, a larger study um, that they're developing these hands to be able to sense temperature and pressure as well. Mm. So this is sort of, you know, one component in a much larger, um, yeah, much larger research project. Yeah. The old Luke Skywalker hand. Yeah. Still looking, still looking for it. Found the lightsaber. Appropriate the for, hand? for May the 4th. So. <laughs> Wasn't Ooh, the hand attached? Yeah. Anyway. Wait, good question. How did old... you find that? It's a long story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there's some bad parts. Uh, Dr. Ray. So, uh, Dr. Shane, uh, the story I found today, uh, it kind of sparked a, in, uh, just a general thought for me was, when you look at something, how do you know you, you really want to eat that? Like... When we when we see food and it triggers us wanting to eat something, I mean, there, there can be we're hungry, but but how do we look at that and know it's food? Like for a lot of mammals, mm. it's a learned behavior. Like you train your child to like mushrooms or not, based yeah. on probably whether or not you like mushrooms, and you can do that on a lot of things. But but for particularly for animals that don't have learned behavior that hatch or that aren't re- reared by parents, how do they know when they look at something? Oh, I should eat that. Mm. And, 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 and particularly the first time before there's any chance for learned behavior. And so this is actually a study in fish from the researchers at the National Institute of Genetics in Mishama, Mishima, Japan, where they were actually looking at how sight triggers feeding behavior in zebrafish, which I don't know if you're aware of zebrafish are these cute little 
sometimes called zebra danios. They're very popular fish to be studied because of they can be clear. And in fact, that you can breed them to be transparent. And in this case, they fluorescently tag different neurons to see when they, they show to zebra fish food, how things connected from the, the visual center to the hypothalamus, which is what triggers feeding. Now, they did this, though. They did this with uh, zebrafish larvae who had never seen prey before and actually kind of exposed them to prey to see, okay, where does the, what actually triggers in this to say, oh, this is you should eat. And so they were using this fluorescently transparent fish to actually map the, the, how the visual center connected to and which neurons connected to the hypothalamus. And, and for model species, it's always attractive to have these very well-studied species where mm-hmm. they figure out what neurons there are. I'm, I'm working with a group in the flory where they're, they're studying dementia and they use a, a they, they're really excited about studying this particular worm because it has 300 some neurons and they know what each one does. I was re- um, reading this morning somebody who said that the mouse is the creature that has the most medical research um, available to it on the earth. Because <laughs> everyone, yeah, everyone, yeah, everyone, yeah, everyone says, <laughs> yeah, if you're a mouse and you've got something wrong with you, odds are there's a cure. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so what was really interesting was is they're, they're trying to figure out the circuits that underlie this innate system that drives animals to feed without any experience because i mean that's that's hardwired in you know that's the prey your your visual centers trigger that you should go eat it and i think it's kind of fascinating we still don't know how that works in animals mm, mm. Uh, and, and at least i think here they've achieved figuring out which neurons trigger the the, the feeding center there yeah. i just kind of went wow that's yeah fluorescently label a fish i know that's <laughs> that, i know that's a regular tool but i still marvel at oh no no it's cool stuff yeah. they, they look cool and, and as fish tank guys yeah. we you know we want more of them well, we should oh, we yeah. fluorescently label all our fish, but yeah, well. that would be great, you know, with you know feeding and, and and actually see the fish part of the fish light up when you feed. Yeah, it, you know. yeah, because cool stuff. I'm okay with the fact it's not natural too. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's not natural for him to be in a glass box either. Yeah. But we're okay with that. Three, triple. On the phone now, we have our first guest for today. It's Damien Bellabradic. He is from a group called CNU, and he's a senior research scientist at CSIRO. Damien, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Now, we wanted to talk to you about this new product that's come out based on seaweed. Um, first of all, before we get to that, um, what what is the sort of big issue around, um, I suppose, uh, deficits that people have in their diet that you guys were looking to resolve? Okay, so we did a whole lot of uh, customer interviews and surveys and uh, based on the information that, um, that one in six people are avoiding dairy and we wanted to better understand what problems uh, people were having, particularly parents and getting their kids to um, get enough calcium into their children's diet uh, to give them confidence that their kids were did have strong and healthy bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in in doing that, um, we uh, developed, <clears throat> uh, identified that uh, the kids were particularly having problems uh, with having many of the products that are currently out there. Either they didn't like the taste of the alternate uh, nuts or non-dairy meals, or they didn't like taking a supplement every day and the parents were um, having to always remind their kids and the kids just weren't interested in those other supplement products. So we're really looking to uh, whether we could develop a product that would uh, help um, parents in particular getting their kids to consume enough 
Do, do you have a feel for how many of these uh, kids in this situation are actually unable to eat dairy because they have a, have a problem or, or how much of this is just a by choice thing? Um, you know, the parents have chosen not to eat dairy, consume dairy for whatever reasons and the kids are in the same boat. Yep, so um, in, in, we spoke to over 160 parents and uh, the ones that just didn't like dairy uh, were only a minority, mm-hmm. um, whereas the, uh, most of the parents we spoke to, their kids had either an intolerance or an allergy to uh, some part of the dairy itself, and then others were making an ethical choice to say that um, uh, they didn't want to consume uh, animal products. Yeah. Now, so you've got this this problem on your hands and you're looking for a solution. Where did you guys start? Because you ended up with seaweed, but where did you start? Yeah. Um, So uh, it was actually uh, the opposite way around. We were were partnering with uh, a group of researchers at Flinders University who have developed a technique to isolate nutrients um, from uh, ocean uh, uh, plant resources and also animal products. Um, and we developed, uh, through developing that isolation process, we had a whole range of different nutrients that we could uh, produce food products from. And we explored a whole range of different options. And the one that stood out was this problem of one in six people avoiding dairy. And so that's where we developed a high calcium product that is actually derived from a lobster shell, which is a waste product from the lobster processing um, uh, facilities uh, here in South Australia where we're based. So, uh, Dr. Ray here, um, I, I just, you said lobster shell. Uh, it's an, there's an interesting problem. I, I don't know if you've considered it or, or maybe it's not a big deal. So, some people are lactose intolerant. Uh, soy milk is an alternative, except for people, but soy is actually an allergen. And then nut milks obviously have a challenge as they're an allergen as well. And so, if you have a something that's derived from lobster shells, then do you worry about the allergies to seafood or particularly yes, chitosan? Yes, so that, uh, there is uh, yeah, a percentage of uh, people avoiding dairy who also um, have intolerance to shellfish, as an example, amongst all the other um, uh, components. And that's where uh, for this, uh, we're still doing the testing to see whether um, the allergen would still be present in the, the purified calcium from the lobster shell. Um, uh, but, yeah, uh, we also can source the calcium from the seaweed as well, which could be in the follow-up products. So, um, yeah, it's very hard to have one product that would service all the um, intolerances and allergies that anyone may have. Mm. Damien, when, when you talk about the use of seaweed, uh, I guess it doesn't jump out to me as something that we'd be, you know, jam-packed with, with calcium. Um, yes. how, how, is there a concentration process or something you have to go through there? It just it, To me, it, it doesn't strike... I, I eat uh, sushi every day, as Dr. Ray knows, and, and it doesn't strike me as though I'm getting all my calcium from that. Um, what, what's the scenario with seaweed? No, so um, the process we're following is to isolate the nutrients from seaweed, um, and the, the highest uh, concentration of nutrients in seaweed is the fibre and the polyphenols, which are of most interest uh, for health benefit. Um, the other minerals, um, although uh, still present at reasonable levels, particularly iodine would be the highest one that we'd get from eating 
uh, a raw form of seaweed, um, but otherwise you'd require this processing technique to concentrate those uh, other minerals such as calcium or magnesium. So there are other products um, that we're planning to develop in coming years, uh, particularly around the fibre and bowel health, and also the polyphenols in relation to bowel health and also uh, diabetes and uh, pre prevention as well. Hmm. So um, I want to I want to ask a question. This is Dr. Reagan. I, I want to ask a question about the, the actual product. Now it's C. What's it called again? Cnude. Cnude. So Cnude has extracts and lots of things from seaweed, as well as the lobster shells. Is that yes. correct? That's right. All right. So then then the real big question: What does it taste like? <laughs> uh, and 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 so is it? Does it? Or what's its texture like? Are you aiming for? Uh, and and really. I mean, personally, I'm hoping for, like, blue milk from Star Wars, but what's the color, too? Okay, so, so the calcium extract itself is a, a white, um, tasteless, odorless powder um, that um, can be... It's uh, highly soluble, so it can be dissolved into uh, liquids and a whole range of different food products, so the application of that is um, quite broad, um, whereas the... Um, the seaweed-based products, depending on how we refine um, each co concentrate, we can either have it more similar to the taste that you'd expect from seaweed or a more pure, purified flavour. But most of the flavour comes from the polyphenols, so um, that's, uh, yeah, mm. if you have that in the extract, then you're more likely to have more of that um, seaweed-type flavour or not. Well, well, Damien, it's interesting stuff and uh, good to see uh, these sorts of things coming out of Australia. Is the product on the market uh, now in Australia and internationally? Uh, no, not yet. We're still working on uh, scale-up of the production process in a food-grade facility and also the um, uh, product refinement and customer uh, testing of our product, which we'll be doing uh, for the remainder of this year. So we're hoping to get it into the market early next year in Australia and then also looking... Uh, to move into the Asian market uh, at some time next year. Sounds good. Damien, thanks so much for chatting to us and uh, good luck with the continued development of the senior product. Excellent. Thanks so much for your interest. Thanks. That was Damien Belabradic from, uh, he's a senior research scientist from CSIRO and uh, part of the group that's doing this senior product, which is, I love, I love it. You know, seafood, I'm all for it. But uh, it sounds like, I oh, know you get kids to drink it. We might have to add something to make it go blue, Dr. Yeah, Ray. Yeah. It could be a, a little, blue milk. A little uh. tricky. Yeah, it could be a little tricky. Folks, you're listening to Einstein and Gergo. We are on the phone now with John Hornbuckle. He's an associate professor in the Centre for Regional and Rural Futures in Deakin University. John, can you hear us? I can, yeah. Hi, how you going, Chan? Good. Look, it's great to have you on the, on the line um, because you're working in something that's just a fascinating area. This is all to do with agriculture and, and the use of our farming um, footprint and so forth and how to make this all better. But So I always had this image that the farmer goes out, they just know how the soil's going, but that's not the way it is, is it? There's some really detailed stuff going on these days with regards to satellites and drones and so forth. Give, give us a bit of an idea where we're at. Yes, yeah, so for sure. So what you're 
find with uh, with a lot of farmers, uh, particularly right across Australia, is that there's a, a very big interest in terms of how they can measure, manage their inputs um, a lot better through through better me- measurement. Uh, so how a lot of farmers are, are trying to tackle this issue, or what we know as variability within the sector, is by using things such as satellite remote sensing uh, for having a look at how their uh, how their crops are performing and differences across different parts of the field, and then modifying things like nitrogen application or water application to uh, to better match what's happening on farm. Mm. Now, I would have thought the way some of this happens normally would be you'd go out and you'd start sampling the soil and so forth in you know little little containers and so forth and measure measure those levels. Is that is that the traditional way to work some of this out? Yeah, that, so traditionally that was how a lot of variability was uh, was actually measured, was through, say, a soil survey approach. Uh, some of the limitations with those approaches are that they're very expensive uh, to actually undertake a survey and then also to get that information processed. So a lot of our current research, particularly in the agricultural sector, is focused around how we can use low-cost technologies mm. um, that work over large areas like satellites or drones to uh, to improve that, uh, that measurement. Now let's start off with the, the satellite discussion because I know these these things are somewhat different what sort of information can you get from the satellites because it it would seem i suppose to 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 many people the idea that you can measure some of the parameters needed for farming from from space is actually quite amazing it is and so uh with the satellites the the information we that we get off those is reflectance based off the uh the crop or the canopy uh so we have different uh what we call bands within the satellites which are reflectance measures that are based off those crops uh we use red near infrared and also red edge bands and we can combine those into different relationships uh for different crops and it, we can measure things such as crop stress uh, through lack of nitrogen or crop stress through lack of water with uh, with those individual bands. So what it allows us to do with the satellites is to measure on ground in every time we've got a satellite overpass, which is, is weekly, um, in terms of how the crop's performing and then modify those water and nitrogen inputs to, to improve their productivity. Now, Australia is the only country in the OECD that doesn't have a space program, so we, we pay... We pay for others to do this sort of stuff for us. I mean, how cost-effective is this for the farmers? Are they able to access this, this information from satellites cheaply or is it something that only the sort of bigger farms can use? Yeah, one of the great things about the satellite technology that's up there, particularly the, the ESA, the European Space Agency, and also the NASA satellites uh, that we use, which are uh, basically giving around 10 to, to 30 metre resolution, is that that data is all freely available. Mm. So, for instance, programs that we use, such as Irisat, it's an online tool which farmers can get on and actually use to manage water within their crops uh, using this data from, from NASA and also ESA, uh, the Landsat and Sentinel platforms. Uh, it's freely available and we've got apps online that allows them to be freely used so Mm. very easy to access low cost and so whether you're a small-scale farmer um, or you're a consultant that uh, maybe serves a number of um, larger corporate farms uh, there's ability to be able to access that data for anyone that's pretty cool stuff now let's let's move into drones because this is something that uh you know we've gone from a a sort of little hobby scenario and i guess certain members of certain military organizations having these things to now you know we hear about things like amazon delivering packages with drones how how are we using drones in terms of the same sort of land management and and crop management that you spoke of with regards to satellites 
Yeah, so it's, it's basically a, a follow-on from a lot of satellite technology. So we're measuring the same sort of indices, the reflectance values off that crop. But rather than using a satellite, we can now you do it with a very low-cost drone. So you'll see even like your DJI, your Phantom 4 drones have an inbuilt camera. Mm -hmm. um, we can actually use that inbuilt camera at a very low cost to get some quite uh, detailed information in terms of how the crop's performing. And so what we've seen, particularly in the last um, uh, two years, is a rapid... Um, increase in terms of the uptake by farmers to, to look at variability through using drones. They do offer some advantages over satellites in that the resolution, so how small we can measure on ground, is a lot improved compared to a satellite. And we can also fly when we've got cloud cover and things like that as well when mm. we can't collect a satellite image. So we've got some advantages from, from that point of view as well. So, uh, Dr. Ray here, I was curious about the drones because there's... Um and you can put really fancy hypospectral cameras on them as well, but does uh, I, I was under the impression in, in, in drone applications, and it's, it's from your descriptions of the satellite work, way, it's way more advanced. One of the limiting things about using drone data was the image processing side of it. So the acquisition is reasonably low cost, but have the tools that have been applied for the satellite imaging simply, do they port over to the drone acquisition data, or is there a little bit of bottleneck or development there? No, I think what you've seen is the uh, there's been two sort of great breakthroughs. One's been the low-cost drone platforms that DGI, for instance, produced. The other one's been software providers such as Drone Deploy and Microsense. Uh, they actually have online um, software, which is available within the cloud. Uh, so once you actually fly your mission with your drone, you'll pull out your SD card out of the drone. Uh, you'll then upload that to the internet. It'll then stitch those images together automatically and undertake all the image analysis and then send you back a uh, map which you can use to then put in your variable rate controller um, for, for doing precision ag or variable rate technology with it. So the software um, has increased in terms of, of ease of availability to access it and... Um, uh, as well as, as the cost platform as well as decreased as well. Very cool. John, it's Dr Catherine here. Is this technology being used sort of widely throughout Australia? And if so, what sort of training or sort of uh, process is there to facilitate the farmers to upskill in this area that's changing so quickly? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, point. I think that um, it is moving rapidly so quickly. Uh, a number of um, uh, of research providers and also extension people have been involved in running workshops, uh, getting farmers to... Um, to uh, have knowledge on how to use these drones, how to use these software applications as well. So probably what we're starting to see at this stage is probably you've got 10% of farmers that are at that top end, um, really early innovators, are uh, picking up this technology themselves. And then you've got, um, you know, a way following behind them and we've seen the benefits that that um, top few percent have and now they're looking to get on board as we move into the future. I think there's a great movie here somewhere to be made, John, about, you know, the, the last holdout farmer who doesn't want the drones at some stage you guys are going have to make i'm curious with um the you know the application of these technologies both drones and satellites how much change in behavior are you actually seeing on the farms because sometimes when these sorts of interventions come into place we don't see huge changes in the way uh the farms are actually managed is this really giving them an edge or changing the way they're going about their practices I think it is for sure, and particularly I think within the Australian farming environment, one of the things is that we um, well, we haven't got low-cost labour, mm. um, so if we can reduce our input costs, that's one of the ways which we can make uh, you know, very big savings. So uh, using satellite and drone technology and then using precision ag or 
um, you know, precise application of water and nitrogen. It then reduces those input costs. So it's actually a way to um, to save money, put more dollars back into the pocket or don't leave the farmer's pocket to start with. And then also if you're putting on the, the correct amount of water and nitrogen, uh, you've generally got higher yield. So you've got uh, basically a, a feedback there at both ends where you're increasing profitability. So I think farmers are seeing that by managing uh, their farms variably, uh, they have a, a big increase in terms of the profitability across them. Mm. Is there a is there a stage at the moment where we're at where we we still need to move from to optimise? The, so the commercially available drones more for these sorts of applications or are they just good off the shelf as they are? I think there is still some uh, work to be done. So what we've seen there at the moment is we've got, uh, I think the tech's there, probably where we're lacking a little bit is how we take some of the tech and then convert it into a very easy streamlined process to mm-hmm. go from, say, a drone image to a, a variable rate application map. So at the moment you may use two or three different pieces of software to do that. I think what you'll find within the next you know, short-term period, probably another 12 to 18 months, is that you'll have uh, basically systems which do that whole process uh, automatically provided by a number of the major agricultural players. Mm. John, if there's any um, farmers out there listening, where would they go to learn more about this sort of stuff that you guys are doing and uh, I suspect just that the apps and so forth in general that you've made available? Yeah, so if they want to go online and have a just do a quick Google search for Irisat, uh, they'll be able to see some of the uh, the work that we've been doing within that space and get free access to the satellite images and um, the Irisat app, which we've got up online. Yep, so that's Irisat, I-R-R-I-S-A-T. John, thanks so much for, for chatting to us, and um, good luck with this. It's, it's really great to see some of these technologies being, being used in this way, so um, keep up the good work. No problems. Thanks for your time. No problem at all. That was Associate Professor John Hornbuckle from the Centre for Regional and Rural Futures in the Faculty of Science and Engineering and Built Environment at Deakin University. Three, triple, Now, in the studio with us is Liz Spry. She's from the Centre for Adolescent Health at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Liz, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, you're, well, first of all, you're the publications manager for 2000 Stories. You have to tell us, what is that? What's 2000 Stories? Uh, so, 2000 Stories is a, a longitudinal study that's been running um, at the Centre for Adolescent Health since back in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been tracking with uh, nearly 2000 uh, young Victorians um, from the age of 14 right through to their mid-30s and they're actually now 40 but the the last survey we we did was about 35 um, and looking particularly at painting a very comprehensive picture of adolescent health and well-being so across the teenage years and then looking at the outcomes of adolescent health and behavior across into adulthood um, Mm. seeing what those patterns are. So so these are these are patients or 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 otherwise that have presented at the children's initially at some stage at the Uh, hospital? That's a good question it's actually community samples so it was a close to representative sample of Victorian school age students at the time in, in 1992. Right. Um, and we've launched a, a sub-study, which is the part that I'm focusing mainly on at the moment, uh, called the Victorian Intergenerational Health Cohort mm-hmm. Study, so another mouthful. Um, and that one's actually following up with those of the original cohort who become parents. And so what we've done is recruited um, nearly a 1,000 of the original participants who've had children over the last uh, 10 years or so. And so a 1,000 out of 2,000 have had kids, which um, is doing well. 
so the numbers are a little bit tricky. It's actually, uh, I think, 662 of the original parents with right. just over a thousand of kids. So obviously, some oh, of them okay. participated with Because when you said a thousand, I thought yeah. if half of them are female, that means yeah. every female has uh, become a parent. Yeah. <laughs> and that's quite. another good point. It's actually both the males and the females that we've recruited. Yep. So we haven't just um, recruited the original female participants that have become pregnant over that time. We've also um, recruited um, men whose partners have become pregnant mm. over that time so that we can look at um, the aim of the study is to look at intergenerational cycles of mental health and well-being mm. so we can start to look at how some of those patterns of health and behavior in the parents right back to adolescence actually um, are associated with the children's health and well-being into into childhood right. and we can do that for both parents because we've recruited both male oh, and female yeah, parents yeah. to the study now, now before we get on to the mental health thing because i think that's just fascinating um, how do you go about tracking these people? And I, I assume, I mean, there must be some that have become deceased. There's others that have moved mm. overseas. I mean, how do you mm. keep the number in the study to keep it effective? It's really hard. Um, and actually, one of the um, one of the things we always say at the stud- in, our, in our study is the participants really are the heart of the study. Mm. Um, because it's a longitudinal study, we can't replace them. Um, mm. So if yeah. they do choose to leave or if we can't, find them or um, if they're deceased then that that's it they're no longer in the study and we can't just pull someone else in because we wouldn't have that sort of long-standing history of data on them so sorry mm. so and when you originally recruited mm. them did you explain at the time that they may be in this study for 20 30 40 mm. years and it, mm. it's, a, it's a big commitment isn't it <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a huge commitment and, and we've been incredibly grateful along the way for the time that participants have given. Um, and certainly at the outset, I don't think even the researchers knew that it was going to be such a long-standing study. The, the initial idea was that it would be a picture of adolescence. So the first sort of six waves of data collection were planned to happen every six months in, in adolescence. And then... Um, and then the idea and the funding came to extend that and continue into adulthood. Um, and then the idea and funding came to extend it into an intergenerational study. So it's more been a case of at every wave we've got in touch with participants and, and, and said to them, hey, look, we've got this new part mm. of the study happening now. Is this something that you're happy to do? Um, so it's sort of more a process of rolling consent over time. So they must be somewhat yeah. excited being part. I mean, because there aren't many of these around the world, I would assume these, these studies are quite hard to do. So, mm. I mean, how, how common are they? Uh, longitudinal studies within one generation are reasonably common. There are quite a lot of them, and mm-hmm. certainly in Australia, we we have quite a lot of outstanding longitudinal studies. Um, intergenerational studies are very rare, mm-hmm. um, partly because they're so incredibly challenging to conduct. Um, one of the biggest challenges for us was to try and identify which participants were pregnant before they gave birth, and in a sample of um, about 1,500 remaining participants were still active in the study. That actually meant contacting them every six months and asking them, you know, can you update your contact details for us? And by the way, are you pregnant or have you recently had a a child? Did you get any where there was a delay on the phone and, you know, how did you know? Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're randomly yeah. calling 1,500 participants, sooner or later you're going to get someone who hasn't announced it yet yes, who's yes. in their second second month. I know. think quite often, actually, when right. the early ones, we were the first to find out. So they hadn't <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'd had some that said, you know, when you send me this letter of information about the study, please don't put anything on it saying that, that might indicate to people I'm pregnant because yeah, people yeah. don't know yet. Yeah. Um, so like we a big often... congratulations and, yeah. and the sort of pink and blue flowers on the front of the envelope. Yeah, um, now, yeah. let's let's talk about the, the use of the study, particularly around mental health, because this is something that we don't see a lot of, this sort of intergenerational mental health studies. So what exactly mm. are you trying to do there? 
Uh, so the broad aim of the study, I think, is uh, is to look at how a parent's behaviour and health risks and mental health, um, dating all the way back from puberty, basically, through to the point when they have their child and, and beyond, um, might affect the health and well-being of their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the current phase of data collection we have at the moment is as the children turn eight years um, old. Um, and that will be going until 2021, when the full sample of children turn eight. Um, the most recent phase of data collection that we've actually completed was the perinatal phase. So we interviewed parents during pregnancy um, and then two months and one year after the birth. And so I think our aim at this stage, while we're waiting for the eight-year data to become available, is really to start looking at um, those perinatal characteristics um, and how they're predicted by what happens before pregnancy. So mums and dads who potentially have a history of um, having had mental health problems in the Mm. past or um, substance use problems, for example, um, how do those things carry into pregnancy if they do carry into pregnancy and beyond and what effect might that have on parents as they transition to parenthood and on their very young infants as well. Now how often do you realistically have to be asking questions at that point because especially Mm. both 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 mothers and fathers as you're going through you know from pregnancy through the birth etc that Mm. first year I mean, the mental state goes up and down like a bloody yo-yo, to be mm. frank, because mm. of all the various things going on. I mean, the bio- biochemistry for the for the mother, mm. uh, the elements for the father. I mean, presume what is it, every month? I mean, yeah. I, I know, it, it's like you would have to monitor it, monitor it quite frequently to get some mm. accurate sampling there, wouldn't you? Mm. And I think this is a big limitation of most research that fo- focuses on the perinatal period. You know, you usually only get one or two time points where you've actually mm. got the data, and so you're missing a whole lot of potential experiences in between those. Um, so we, we went for the third trimester of pregnancy um, and then again about two months after the birth and one mm-hmm. year after the birth. I think we didn't um, go straight after the birth because at that stage many people have what's commonly called sort of the baby blues and that's yep. quite a different phenomenon. It um, often resolves quite quickly. Um, but then around two months after the birth is usually a time when things start to settle down a little bit for some people and particularly by about a year after the birth that's when things have settled down quite a lot um, for many women um, and many men and we thought that that might be a point at which some of the more um, systemic differences might start to emerge in terms of Mm. the preconception associations. Mm. And, And is that occurring? Are you seeing that? Uh, so we're just starting to analyse those data now and, uh, yeah, we are starting to see some trends coming through that that suggests that um, basically two months after the birth is a pretty crazy time for everyone, yep. <laughs> regardless yep. of, uh, you know, what they've brought into the pregnancy. Um, and so there's not so much of an association there with some of the preconception um, factors that we've been looking at, but as you get closer to that one-year mark, um, you do find that things are perhaps settling down more for some people than for others and you can get a, some sort of sense of who that might be by looking at their history of mental health and behaviour before they conceive the baby. And presumably then, I mean, if this, this all works, then mm. there's an early intervention step before things get problematic mm. that you would be able to take. Yeah, I think um, the sort of the aims in terms of health promotion are probably twofold at this stage. So we'd be looking at thinking about how can we identify men and women who perhaps are at greater risk of having challenges and problems during mm-hmm. the perinatal period and and potentially um, thinking in a preventative way rather than a treatment way um, around putting support structures in place for people at that stage. Um, But the other thing that we'd be looking at, and there's a sort of globally a shift um, in focus on 
health promotion in adolescence and young adulthood, thinking about adding an intergenerational lens to that as well. So there's a lot of emerging evidence that what we do, you know, in adolescence and in young adulthood does have an intergenerational mm. impact. So um, interventions at that point don't just help the individual, but also generations to yeah. come. Oh, so much on us, on yeah. our shoulders. Uh, Liz, look, th- this is really interesting stuff. And I think anything that especially shines a bright light on some of the uh, the mental health elements with regards to having children and pre and post and the whole lot in between and everything is is very important because we we don't hear enough about that i don't think there's there's quite a lot about you know breastfeeding and the importance of that but we don't hear about postnatal depression that often all those sorts of things and difficulties coming in so keep up the great work thanks so much for chatting to us and um maybe we can chat to you again sometime in the future thanks very much for having me Liz Fryers from the Centre for Adolescent Health at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Now, we're pretty much out of time. Dr Catherine, thanks so much. Good to see you again. Thank you very much, Dr Shane. It's been a great show. You're on a lowered chair there. I am. I think the chair's broken or I'm just not able to uh, manage the chair (laughs) on a Sunday morning. (laughs) (laughs) Dr Lauren, good to see you again. Good to see you as well. And Dr Ray. Good to see you, Dr Shane. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. We've got as many as Charlie Sheen still. Yeah. Yeah, he's dropped off a bit. People don't like him anymore. I don't know what happened there, but he, he said some things and, you know, did some things. But we're doing okay. Um, I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, thanks so much for listening in to Triple R. We're going to leave you in a moment. Remember, science is everywhere. We will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.